Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Woohoo! Thank you. Well, the first miracle is that I managed to actually step up onto the stage because it was legs day at the gym yesterday and uh, ah, brutal, I tell you, brutal. So if you've got a Bible, uh, why don't you turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, we are looking at the life story of Elijah. So uh, for those of you that haven't been here uh, in the previous weeks, Elijah was one of the uh, prophets of the Old Testament and he's a man that suddenly springs up in the story of the Old Testament, suddenly seems to come out of nowhere. And his commission from God is to call a wayward nation back to himself. And Israel has turned to all sorts of other gods and other idols, Asherah and Baal and gods of other names. And Elijah suddenly appears amidst the kind of gloom and the darkness in the nation. And he begins to be a prophetic voice saying, Israel, it's time to come back to Yahweh. It's time to come back to the Lord your God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read Old Testament stories, I can sometimes be left scratching my head thinking, so how does that apply to me? <laughs> because these are ancient stories. They're, they're old stories. But this is what the New Testament says about the old. Romans 15.4 says, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So the New Testament says of the old, these stories, though they're ancient stories, actually they are stories to show us what it looks like when you have faith in God and you put your hope in Him. They are designed for our encouragement because the ancient stories are actually talking about the same God that we have just been worshipping. And so as we turn to the story today, Elijah, I want us to ask this one question. How does God change a nation? Just, just wave at me. If you may be in your bones somewhere, you feel like our nation needs changing in some kind of a way. All right, I think we're mostly on the same page here this morning that we can look at our land, the country that we live in, and probably see numerous things that we know we want God to break in and change. So the question this morning from 1 Kings 18 is, how does God then actually change a nation? How does he transform a country? That's what we're going to answer today as we look at 1 Kings 18. So we're going to dive straight into chapter 18 and verse 1. We read this. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, who's the king, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Let's just pause there. What's the first thing that God does in order to change a nation? He gives us fresh promises. It's the first thing that he does. And of course, the context in the story that we've just read is that for three years, Israel has been in a time of drought and famine. There's been no rain on the land at all. And in fact, Elijah in chapter 17 was the one who said, listen, there's going to be no rain for three years. And the reason that God does that in the nation is that the physical drought is representative of the spiritual drought in the nation. And what's happening in the land is God is saying, listen, I want you to stare at your need long enough so that you begin to stare at me again for your answers. When you see the drought around you, the idea is that you then lift your head and start calling out to Yahweh, the God of your salvation, that he would send rain. And of course, in a, an agricultural society, the weather was a big deal, perhaps even more than in England. And 
when, when farming and agriculture and crop producing was how you made your living and how you lived your life, actually a lack of rain was devastating to an economy and to a nation. And that's one of the reasons that Israel had turned to Baal, who was this pagan, foreign idol, this alien deity, because he was the god of weather. Baal was the god of weather. And what many uh, nations believed at that time was that Baal was the one who controlled the rain. He controlled the skies. He was the god who could send fire. He was the god who could cause uh, torrents of rainfall from the sky. And so Israel, instead of looking at the famine and turning to Yahweh, had looked at the famine and they turned to foreign gods. They'd become Baal worshippers, worshippers of foreign gods. This was meant to be the ultimate stop-taking moment for the nation. And into that context, as Elijah is listening to the Lord, he suddenly hears a new word. Elijah, I'm about to send rain. So he got up and he went to see the king. And of course, this is how God has always gone about actually changing nations and changing individual lives. He plants a promise in someone's heart. And when we respond to the promise, suddenly we see fruit. We see life start to grow all around us. This is the way God works. And actually, what you have right here is a book full of promises. This is a book full of promises. One young man once came to Smith Wigglesworth, who was one of the kind of English pioneers of the Pentecostal movement. And this young man came up to Wigglesworth and said, Mr. Wigglesworth, I need a promise from God to stand on. So Wigglesworth took his Bible out of his pocket and he threw it on the train platform. And he said, stand on that in a Bradford accent. So the young man stands on Wigglesworth's Bible and Wigglesworth says, now you're standing on a great heap of promises. Believe every one of them. This is a book of promises. We serve a God who speaks and acts. Scripture says that he's not a man that he should lie. God doesn't deceive. He doesn't tell half-truths. He doesn't kind of lead you up the garden path and then change his mind. God's word is eternal. His word is flawless. Scripture says, listen, mankind, we're like the grass of the field. We're here one day and we're gone the next, but God's word will last forever. In 10,000 years when you're before the throne of God, this book will still be relevant. Because God's word is eternal. It never fails. When he speaks, it comes to pass. God's promises actually are what brings change. His word is what causes change to come about. And what we know from Scripture is that there are two types of promises in the Bible. And when you read a promise in Scripture, you need to ask yourself, which kind of promise is this? On the one hand, you've got unconditional promises. These are promises that come with no strings attached. The fulfillment is all on God's end, not yours. But then on the other hand, you've got conditional promises. Promises where God says, this is what I promise you if you will do X, Y, or Z. So for example, an unconditional promise would be God's promise to Abraham. God comes to this man who's just minding his own business, living in a place called the Ur of the Chaldees. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 12. And God just pitches up to Abraham and says, Abraham, follow me. Leave the land where you're living and I will show you where you're meant to go. I'm going to bless your descendants and they're going to outnumber the stars in the sky and you are going to be a blessed nation from you. A whole nation's going to come. Now that promise was all on God's end. God's just like, this is what I'm going to do. Here we go. Off we go. The fulfillment was on his end. 
But there are also many conditional promises in Scripture. In fact, most of them are conditional promises. And that's because God doesn't just want you to be a spectator sitting on the stands. He wants you to be a participant. He wants you to be a partner. He wants you to grab hold of his hand and say, Father, I'm in your business. Let's go. Let's do this together. Do you understand you're a partner, not a spectator? And that's why so many of God's promises are actually invitations to come close, to get involved, to be part of something that he is doing. That's why Jesus says, listen, I only do what I see the Father doing. What he's doing, that's what I'm about. I'm partnering with God. Let me just take, for example, some of the conditional promises of Scripture. Psalm 37, 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Anybody here want the desires of your heart met? I think all of us would say, yeah, I want to be happy, I want to be joyful, I want to be thriving, I want to be in the sweet spot of life, I just want to be ready to rumble and just enjoying what I'm meant to be doing. Well, there's a promise in Scripture, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's a conditional promise. The Father's saying, this is what I want to do in your life. Here's the roots to it. Delight yourself in me. Put me at the center of your life. Live a life of worship and celebration and prayer. Put me, just make your delight in me, and I'll sort out the rest. Do you see, it's a conditional promise. Here's another one. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Any of us here just long for your path to be straight, for God just to direct your way, to tell you what to do in life? Like, what am I meant to be doing, Lord? Please make my path straight. Well, there's a promise. Trust in the Lord. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And he'll make your path straight. It's a promise from God. Actually, if you make your decisions with Christ at the center, he's going to sort your path out for you. So stop worrying. You've got a promise. But it is something that you need to respond to. Like another one, Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Anyone here ever experienced anxiety, worry, fear, panic? I certainly have. But there's a promise for you. There's a promise for me, and it's this. He will keep you in perfect peace when you choose to set your mind on him. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's a promise. I remember years and years ago when our, our children were very little, I remember our son going through a season of having nightmares every single night and very, very sleepless nights, like for months and months and months. And as parents, by the end, we were like, Jesus, please just make him go to sleep. Lord, we'll do anything. <laughs> you know, we were praying and we were fasting and we were warfaring and, and bless him, he was having these chronic nightmares and uh, we would kind of, we would pray with him and we would teach him. And, and then I remember one night he didn't get up. And in the morning at breakfast time, we were like, huh, what happened? What happened? You didn't get up last night. He's like, yeah. He said, he said I woke up and I had a nightmare and I was very scared. But I remembered what you said, that I should pray in those moments. So he said, I prayed. And he said, when I prayed, I heard a voice say out loud from behind my bedroom curtain, I want you to think of me. So he said, I did, and I went to sleep. And then he never had another nightmare from that night onwards. Because there's a promise in Scripture. If you set your mind on him, he will keep you in perfect peace. That's the Scripture. That's his promise to you. He's a promise keeper. 
And this is how God starts to change not only our lives, but whole nations. He starts to plant promises in our hearts that we might respond and believe them. One of the books that I read most often growing up as a teenager was a book about the Welsh Revival in 1904. How many of you have read about the Welsh Revival? Hardly any of you. Right, go home, get on Amazon, and buy a book on the Welsh Revival by Effion Evans. It's called The Welsh Revival, 1904. It's just an incredible story of how God visited the nation of Wales uh, at the turn of the kind of 20th century. And right at the heart of that revival was this young man called Evan Roberts. There he is right there. And Evan Roberts was a doorman at the coal mines in Wales where he lived. And he would open the door to the miners every day. He worked in the mines himself. But he was a man who loved Jesus. And he would always be found with his Bible on him. In his breaks in the mines, he would be reading the Bible by candlelight. He would write scriptures out and give them to the miners as they left the mine at the end of each shift. And then when he got home, he wouldn't go and shower or have a bath or have his dinner. He would go straight to the coal shed at the end of his garden where he would give himself to pray for revival. And his landlady said that very often he would then come back into the house after hours of praying and his black coal-stained face would have white gutters all down his cheeks where he'd just been crying out to God for the nation of Wales and saying, God, would you move in this land? And after many months of this, there came a period of four months where for four months every night, uh, Evans was woken up from 1 till 4 a.m. every single night. And as he woke up at 1 a.m., he would give himself to pray for three hours for revival in the middle of the night. And near the end of that four months, he had a vision. And the vision was of a hand reaching down from the moon and catching all of Wales up into it. And then he saw written on a parchment, 100,000 souls. And he knew in that moment that God had given him a promise. There's fresh rain. There's fresh rain. And from that moment, for the next two years in Wales, 100,000 souls came to know Christ right across the villages and towns of Wales. And actually, it was a revival that spread all around the known world. And the effects were amazing. So, for example, courthouses were empty because there were no crimes to try. Can you imagine that in our town? Like, the courthouses are shut because there's no crime. That's what happened in Wales as a result of this revival. Um, the newspapers, the front headlines were actually not about politics or Brexit. They were actually about revival in the nation and about what God was doing. They were printing God's stories on the front of the, the kind of secular newspapers of his day. Even the horses that worked in the mines could no longer understand their miners because they no longer swore. The sale of alcohol dropped. Like Just the whole nation was transformed. How does that happen? God gives a promise to one man who goes to his coal shed to pray. And then a nation gets changed. That's how God has always done it. He plants a promise in the heart of his people and they begin to respond. Elijah, rain is coming. What does he do? He gets up to see the king. He does something with what God has said. Friends, what are you doing with what God has said to you? If you are carrying a promise, but you are sitting in passivity, then your promise is no more than wishful thinking. God gives you a promise, not that you can be a spectator, but that you can say, Father, how can I get involved? What can I do? How can I respond to the promise that you've given me? If he's given you a promise, put it into action. Get and see the king, like Elijah did. Next thing we see in the passage is this. We carry on the story, the end of verse 2. We read that now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab the king had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. 
And while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. God calls a devout man called Obadiah, who was actually working for the evil King Ahab, but secretly he was a believer in Yahweh. He was a follower of the Lord. And in his spare time, while he wasn't at the palace, he was hiding and protecting the prophets of God. He was finding them, gathering them in caves, and feeding them, nurturing them, looking after them in secret. And of course, what we know of the story is that Jezebel, who was the queen of King Ahab, was an incredibly evil and malevolent queen. And the people that seemed to be the special targets of her wrath were the prophets. They were the ones that she seemed to go out to silence more than anyone else in the nation. And the reason for that is that she understood, if I can control the prophets, I can control the nation. Because actually, it's through the prophets that you receive the promises. (laughs) See, if you know anything about world wars, you will know that world wars are not just won by the offensive line, but by stopping the supply line that gets to the army. How do you win a war? Well, you win the war at sea. You win the war of supplies. You win the war of provisions. You stop the supply line getting to the army so that the army can no longer advance. This was exactly Jezebel's thinking. If I can stop the prophets, I stop the supply line. No mailman, no mail. That's how it works. And so Jezebel systematically begins to destroy the prophets because she perhaps knew the history of prophets in Israel who'd brought incredible change as they delivered God's word from God's presence. Just take, for example, one of the Old Testament prophets, Jonah. You know the story about Jonah, the guy who got swallowed by the large fish? Yeah, you know that story? So Jonah, albeit he was a very reluctant prophet, (laughs) here's God, go to the city of Nineveh and tell Nineveh they've got 40 days to change their act, otherwise I'm wiping them out. And Jonah thinks, yeah, I don't really fancy that assignment. Yeah, I'm going to run away, actually, from this one, Lord. (laughs) So he runs away. He gets on the ship. He tries to sail as far as he can away from Nineveh. The ship capsizes. He gets swallowed by a whale. Da-da-da-da. You know the story. And so he's in the belly of a whale. He's got quite a lot of time to think and reflect and think, what am I doing with my life? Why did I make this decision? Maybe I made a bad call. (laughs) He gets spit out, and then he goes to Nineveh. (laughs) And he says, guys, you've got 40 days to clean up your act or God is coming with judgment. And we read this in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, I think it is. It just simply says this, Nineveh believed God. They called a national fast. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They began to repent of their ways, and God blessed them instead of judging them. See, the prophets of old brought change. When you heard God, it was a catalyst for forward movement. I was, just, uh, I was in Scotland last weekend with a, a group of churches and a couple of young guys came up during the conference just to share some stories with me. And I always get worried when people come to me and say, Phil, do you remember when you prophesied? Because I hardly ever do. <laughs> and I always hoped that it was a good word, not a bad word. <laughs> and so these two guys came up to me. One of them, a young man, he said, years ago, I was in, uh, living in the south of England and you prophesied and you said that you could see the mountains of Scotland. And he said, you could see me being fired out like an arrow into the hills of Scotland and revival coming to the nation. He said, I just want you to know, off the back of that, I planted a church two years ago in Glasgow. It's like, wow. Another young man comes up to me, he says, don't know if you remember, he said, you prophesied that I would have a heart for China 
and that God would open up doors into that nation and that God would give me a special friend through whom I would get that connection. And he said, I'd just like to introduce you to my wife, who is Chinese. <laughs> and then he introduces me to his two children. <laughs> you see, what happens is God gives prophetic mouthpieces to create forward momentum, to create action. And so Jezebel, of course, tries to stop this. She tries to stop the mailman from delivering the mail. They were a threat. And if you want to shut down the prophetic, you can do it in one of two ways. You can either just completely kill it off, or you can institutionalize it. Jezebel did both. If anyone stood up to her, then she had no problem just chopping them at the neck, literally killing them off. But for those that were willing to toe the line, they actually became paid prophets in the king's palace so that they would prophesy the things that the king wanted to hear. In other words, the prophetic got domesticated. Now here's the question. Do you listen to the prophetic only when it suits you? Or do you listen to the prophetic when it's authentically God's voice? Whether you want to hear what he's saying or not. Because if you do the former, I would suggest to you that you've institutionalized the prophetic to the point where you only listen to the things that confirm your own opinions. But actually, God gives us at times prophetic messages that are meant to stop us in our tracks and say, it's time to change. It's time to change. And I know one church years and years ago that were meeting, they kind of were struggling and it wasn't really going very well and they invited a prophetic man into their midst. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you prophesy in this way, but this man kind of came into the midst of this circle of people and this is what he prophesied. What you're doing is not the church, never will be the church, so you need to stop and start again. Now that's a word, isn't it? What do you do with that? Well, actually, the guys leading that church humbly listened and weighed and talked about that word, and they thought, that's God. That actually is God. And so they stopped what they were doing, and they planted a brand new church in that city, which is today thriving and reaching many hundreds of people, because they chose not to institutionalize the prophetic. When God starts to move in a nation, he begins to awaken prophetic voices, and he starts to call the prophets from their caves. <laughs> Now, if you are here and you would say that you are prophetic primarily as a gift, I would hazard a guess that you have walked through some kind of experience in your life that has tried to control you, shut you down, institutionalize you, or kill you off. Friends, you're not alone. That is a common prophetic experience. But I've got good news for you. God is calling the prophets out of the cave. <laughs> He's calling them out of the cave. He's creating a safe place. He's creating this Obadiah spirit where actually we get to feed the prophets instead of kill them off. Where we actually create an environment where we say, we want to hear the voice of the Lord and we want to respond to it. And this is part of how God begins to change a nation. Proverbs says, where there is no revelation, people perish. Winston Churchill said, when the eagles stop talking, the parrots start squawking. <laughs> that was his paraphrase of Proverbs. <laughs> Guys, the goal is to raise eagles, not parrots. Eagles, not parrots. Next, let's carry on in our story. This is what we read next, just a little bit further on in the story, verse 16. We read, Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. 
Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab obediently sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? That word literally means limping between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Here's the next part of the story. How does God change a nation? He sends his people up the mountain. He sends his people up the mountain. Elijah summons all of Israel to gather on Mount Carmel. Uh, A couple of summers ago, I stayed right on the edge of the Mount Carmel range. This is massive range of mountains going all the way to the coast at Haifa. And on that mountain, Elijah summons the nation to meet him. It's a moment of reckoning. And what we know of mountains in Scripture is that mountains are always incredibly significant places of encounter or influence. If you find a valley in Scripture, then it's usually a place of testing. But mountains are places of meeting with God. Just take, for example, this list of significant mountains in Scripture. Mount Ararat was the mountain where Noah's ark landed and where he first saw the rainbow. Mount Moriah was the Abrahamic covenant. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments given to Moses. Mount Tabor, the transfiguration. Mount of Olives, Jesus prays there before the crucifixion. These are all significant mountaintops where God did significant moments. And in this moment, Elijah has to get up his mountain, his moment. Here's the question for you. What is the mountain of influence that God has called you to go up? Where is your place of significance in culture, in society, where God is saying, come on, don't be passive. It's your time to do what I've called you to do, what I've made you to do. What is your mountain? And primarily, I'll suggest to you there are seven mountains in culture. And it's really on these mountains that the nations are discipled. Not necessarily by us, but certainly they're being discipled by someone. These are the seven mountains. There's the mountain of religion. Of course, church would be included in that. People who are perhaps called to reach those of other faiths. There's the mountain of family. Again, many of us know that there has been just a systematic dismantling of family across our nation over the last numbers of decades. Since the last two world wars, the fatherlessness in our nation has just gone rampant. There are whole father deserts in our nation. During the borough of Camden in London, 62% of families have no father at home. More teenagers own a smartphone than have ever known a father in their life, in our nation. Fatherlessness. Where should Christians be? They should be on the mountain of family. They should be on that mountain being a voice for the king's values, saying God loves family, God loves marriage. Here's how you parent your children well. Here's here's adoption and fostering. Here are the values of how we put family back together in our nation. If you're a Christian, some of you, this is your primary mountain. It's where you're called to be a voice of change in our nation. Education. If you are a teacher in this room, God bless you. You have an incredibly high calling. How many of you understand that the ideas that you're going to think in 15 years' time are already being formed in the universities of our nation? You think your mind is your own, but actually your thoughts are being decided for you in the institutions of, in our country. There are debates happening in university campuses all over this world, and that is where the thoughts of 15 years' time are being formed. So where should Christians be? They should be in the places of learning. They should be in the places of education. They should be lecturers at university. They should be professors. God bless you, Matt. That's exactly where Christians should be. An influence on that mountain. 
What about government? Praise God for those who are called into politics. Praise God for them. I I wouldn't have a clue what to do right now, but praise God for those that are called to be in politics right now. God bless you. It's a high calling. That's exactly what Christians should be, being an influence, maybe being a local counselor, being involved as a school governor, standing for an MP, getting involved in civic life in some kind of shape or form. That is exactly where we should be. Someone once said this, that you get the government that you prayed for. Just think about that. You are called to pray for your government. You're called to pray for the authorities. And ultimately, you get the leaders that you deserve. There you go. Just chew on that for a moment. What about the mountain of media? It's a huge, influential mountain on our planet. You know, it's the voice of persuasion. It's the voice of cultural values in our nation. If you were the enemy, which mountain would you try and occupy? So Christians, if you're called to media, praise God. That is a holy calling. It's a holy calling. What about the mountain of celebration of arts and sports and entertainment and YouTube and Netflix and movie making and graphics and design and dance and poetry? That is exactly where Christians should be. (laughs) We cannot abdicate that space. Christians should be right on the cutting edge and forefront of celebration in our nation. Because again, how do young people's values get formed? They get formed by the films they watch, by the music they listen to, by the things that they see on TV. So where should Christians be? On the mountain of influence of media. I was chatting to a friend this week who has a radio station and it reaches 1.7 billion people. And I thought, praise God that we've got a Christian who's releasing stuff that's going to reach that many people. That's exactly what Christians should be doing. And then the mountain of economy and business, the flow of resources. Do you know, 97% of church does not happen on a Sunday morning when we gather here. 97% of church activity happens on Monday morning when you go to work and you carry the kingdom wherever you go. That's where the real business of life happens. So when you go to work on Monday, can you just go to work with a little song in your heart and a little skip in your step and a little jig? Can you just put a little bit of a strut on? Like, you know, if you're an engineer or an architect or a teacher or a gardener or whatever you're doing, just, just go with this sense of, yeah, I'm meant to be here. I am salt and light where God has placed me in society. I'm, I'm here to make a difference. This is no accident. I'm not just kind of working to pay the bills. Actually, I'm working for Jesus right now. He sent me here to serve him. This is why I'm here. So the reason I'm on the planet is to introduce people to the king and his values. How does God change a nation? He sends his people up the mountain. And then quickly, the last two points. Fire on sacrifice. Elijah calls a contest. We haven't got time to read the whole story, but it's pretty much a straight John Wayne Western shootout. Okay, on the one hand, the prophets of Baal have got their their bull on their altar, and Elijah says, listen, if your God answers by fire on your sacrifice, then Baal is God. But if my God answers by fire on my sacrifice, then he is God. So let's go. And the prophets of Baal are doing their stuff, and they're cutting themselves, and they're getting in a frenzy, and getting a bit of a tizzy, and basically nothing happens. Elijah steps up to his sacrifice and prays. And here's what it says in verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. How does God change a nation? He sends fire on sacrifice. Elijah at this point has given up all his options. Either God comes through for me or I'm dead. (laughs) Either God answers by fire, or I am sunk. 
All his options are in one basket. But this is how God works. He comes to those who sacrificially obey him. Friends, are you obeying God in a way that costs you? Because God's fire falls on sacrifice. What about your prayer life? Is your prayer life costing you a little bit of sleep maybe? I love sleep. I find it really hard to give up my sleep. It feels really costly. <laughs> and I was chatting to a friend this week who started a business 18 months ago. And he was saying to me this week that he's almost at full capacity. God has just blessed his business. And then in a separate conversation, he said, yeah, I'm up about 5, 5.30 every single day. I was like, good Lord, why are you up so early? And he's like, because I get up to pray. It's the only time I have to be with the Lord. So I get up early before anyone else is up and I seek God. And I thought those two ideas are connected. You have sought God and he has sent fire on your sacrifice. He has blessed your business because you've decided to prioritize him. Another friend of mine at the moment is doing a 40-day screen entertainment fast. 40 days without Netflix, without movies, without any Hollywood entertainment. Why? So that she can seek God for revival during those 40 days. Let me tell you, I'm expecting fire to fall on that sacrifice. What about your giving? What about your secret serving? What about the way you look after others? God falls on sacrifice. And then lastly, as we come in for a landing, this is what we read in verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bound down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rainstorm came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. How does God change a nation? He renews revival prayer. He calls people to seek him for the things that he's promised. Notice that Elijah, after fire has come, does not kick back and think, yeah, the job's done, brilliant. No, no, no. He climbs the mountain again and he puts his face between his knees and he says, God, you said you'd send rain. Please send it now. And God answers with rain. And suddenly the spiritual drought is over. The famine is broken because one man decided to get to the coal shed and pray for the promises that God had given him. Friends, if you carry promises without prayer, it's just wishful thinking. History belongs to people who give themselves to pray. It belongs to people who choose to pray. And that's why weeks like this are so significant for us as a church. Because we give ourselves to say, Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. Would you water these promises with your presence? Would you change a nation? Would you do what we cannot do in our own strength? God, would you have mercy on the ones that we love? Would you save the souls of those that are nearest and dearest to us? Oh God, would you send rain? Would you send rain on this land? History belongs to those people. And I would encourage us together to go on the journey of being a church that prays that does warfare in the heavenlies, that comes together that says, do you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my Friday night Netflix so I can go to church and pray. History belongs to you, my friend, if you make that decision because God is the God who answers prayer.